0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and I am thrilled to welcome Clint Smith to The Stacks. Clint is a staff writer at The Atlantic, a poet, and the author of How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. We talk today about this incredible book, easily one of my favorites of the year so far, how traveling to physical locations informed Clint's storytelling, and what we gain and lose from the ways history is being taught in America today. The Stacks Book Club pick for June is The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness by Anne Boyer. We will be discussing the book on this podcast on Wednesday, June 30th with Michael Denzel Smith. If you love the Stacks and want an easy way to show your support, please consider joining the Stacks Pack community on Patreon. You contribute monthly and earn perks like our virtual book club, shout outs on the show, and discounts on merch. And I would not be able to make this show if not for the generosity of the Stacks Pack. So if you're interested in being a part of making this show happen week in and week out, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Marie Hoda, Steph, H. Hayes, Sydney Bollinger, Camila Arnado, Natalie Tucker, Sarah A. Schaefer, Kelly Mormon, Miwa Messer, and Nina. Thank you all so much for your generosity and for making this show possible. Now it's time for you all to hear from the great Clint Smith. All right, everybody. I am very excited today. I get to talk to author, poet, journalist, history teacher, recent PhD, all all around awesome human, Clint Smith. So welcome to the Stacks.
1: It's so good to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you. Um, Your new book is How the Word is Passed. It is out now for folks listening at home. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about your book?
1: So How the Word is Passed is about different historical sites throughout the country and how they reckon with or fail to reckon with their relationship to the history of slavery. So I go to places like Monticello Plantation, um, Angola Prison, uh, the Blandford Cemetery, the Whitney Plantation, New York City to try to examine to what extent are these places uh, confronting, running from, or or doing, doing something in between with regard to how they talk about their relationship to that period of history.
0: How did you get the idea to frame the book in that way?
1: So in May of 2017, uh, several Confederate statues were taken down in my hometown in New Orleans. So I was born and raised in New Orleans. Um, Hurricane Katrina was my senior year of high school, so I actually finished mm-hmm. school in Houston, but uh, my family still lives in New Orleans. Um, New Orleans is and will always be be my home and, and a part of me in in ways that I'm still discovering. Um, and so, these statues were coming down: statues to Robert E. Lee, Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard, Confederate General Jefferson Davis, Confederate President, among some others that were um, sort of symbols of white supremacy. Uh, and And I was watching from from my home in Maryland, and watching as these statues were coming down, and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages and more iconography and more symbols to enslave people uh, or to enslavers rather than enslave people. Um, mm. And what were, what are the implications of that? And what does it mean that I, to get to school, I went down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. I had to go down Jefferson Davis highway to, uh, you know, that my middle school was named after a Confederate leader that my parents live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people that whenever i went to uh, on field trips to plantations uh, around new orleans growing up nobody even said the word slavery right mm-hmm. and so like how does that happen in a city like this and and what does it mean that the sort of iconography of the confederacy is so deeply entrenched in a city that was literally built by enslaved people and so i started thinking a lot about who were the people in the city who were trying to tell a different story um, and who were trying to push back against these sort of narratives that were so deeply uh, entrenched in, in the sort of landscape of the city and discovered, you know, public historians and teachers and activists and scholars who were doing amazing work. And I started getting curious. I was like, well, what would this look like if I, like, I wonder what other places around the country are doing. Like I'm Ooh. figuring out what new Orleans is doing. And I, I started thinking about what other places were doing. Um, and so I kind of branched it out and I started going to different plantations and historical sites and cities and neighborhoods and houses and memorials and monuments across the city or across the uh the the country um and realized that you know this country is so is such a patchwork um mm-hmm. of experiences and in such a patchwork of stories, and that the story we tell about slavery is uh really inconsistent depending on where you are um and and it largely depends on the sort of larger socio-political and historical realities, um, that shape the community from which these sites are emerging. So, um, yeah, it actually began as a, as a poetry. I, I thought it was going to be a poetry collection. Um, hmm. I thought I would write some poems about like each poem would be about a different, um, uh, monument or memorial in new Orleans. Um, and that that would be the conceit of the book. And then I realized that I think I needed some more room, um, hmm to to sort of wrestle with these questions and and i also realized that it this was a project that shouldn't just be in my voice right like it shouldn't just be my own meditations on place like i needed to bring in bring in conversations and reflections and perspectives from from other folks and and i think that that's when the book uh became the sort of modern iteration of uh of what it is
0: Okay, I wasn't gonna kind of start here, but since you brought up your poetry, I we are gonna start here. So things <laughs> things have changed. There we go. One of the things I see a lot is like poets will write their memoir, right? Mm. Like that's like a pretty common thing. And I'm curious about you writing sort of just a nonfiction history book. And and I don't know. I just I'm curious about that. Like I don't normally think of poets and nonfiction as being like these things go together, unless it's yeah. a memoir. So I'm wondering if that was difficult for you. I, I know. I mean, obviously, I mentioned that you are have a PhD, so like I know you are a writer in other forms. But I'm just curious how that maybe informed this book or didn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, I came to writing as a poet, and so poetry informs and animates every sort of writing I do. Um, I. Again, when I first started thinking about these questions, when I first started watching these statues come down, both in New Orleans and across the country, um, and and as this country was having a more robust conversation around the history and the historiography of slavery than than I had ever seen in my lifetime, poetry is the thing that helps me sort of think through a question, and Mm. and it has always been that. And so what I love about poems are the ways that they – Demand that you focus on something in the most granular, microscopic um, way, like focus on on an idea or a moment or, or an object in a way that forces you to pay attention to it as both uh, the reader and as as the writer. Um, mm. You know, I mean, just, you know, if you're writing a poem about a leaf, um, you are forced to look at that leaf in ways that you might not otherwise, even if you've passed that tree that the leaf is on right. you know, every single day of your life, you know, right. it, it, it demands that you pay attention, um, in ways that I find helpful both as a writer and, and as a person. Um, and so I thought I was going to just sort of do this meditation on, uh, the monuments in my hometown. Uh, I mean, cause there are hundreds of monuments of, of enslavers and, um, confederates and, people who uh, participated in the slave trade in in various ways. And then I didn't want to focus singularly on that group of people, right? I didn't want to do a book about um, statues to the Confederacy that didn't feel like the story that I wanted to tell. Um, But what I did want to do was use that as sort of an entry point to think about this larger history, right? To think about this 250-year period of history that we are made to feel as if we talk about all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. but in reality, we don't talk about it in any way that is commensurate with the impact that it had on this country. And that's part of the insidiousness of white supremacy. I think is that it makes you feel as if you are talking about something all the time, or there's like slavery movies coming out all the time or books about slavery come out all the time when they're relative to the impact that this two and a half centuries had on our contemporary landscape of inequality. We don't actually engage with it in any way. Um, that that accounts for that so so i wanted to broaden it out a bit um and and i've spent the past several years just uh thinking about and engaging with and reading these books on the history of slavery um and the history of inequality more broadly that have been really transformative for me um and and part of what i just started to think about was what would it look like to take the best of the historiography that i've spent time with and to go to places that embody that that history, right? Like you take a book like Annette Gordon-Reed's The Hemings is a Monticello, which mm. was, you know, when I read it, transformed my understanding of Jefferson, transformed my understanding of colonial America, transformed my understanding of, of the Hemings family. Uh, it was so important. And that's why it won, you know, basically every right. award that is possible right. for a book to win. And I was like, well, what would it look like to take the best of the history that an amazing scholar like Annette Gordon-Reed has written and then to go to Monticello? And, and to describe what it feels like to stand on that land to describe what it feels like to stand in that house, to just, who are the people who are telling that story? Mm. Um, who, what do their voices sound like? What do they look like? How, what are their, um, backgrounds and their experiences and, and how do their sensibilities shape the way that they make sense of and tell this story? And who are other people who are coming to these places, um, who, might have a very different set of uh life experiences and sensibilities that inform how they experience that land. And so I wanted to bring as much emotional texture and human texture and sensory details um and combine it with this sort of reporting and um and the history to create something that that felt dynamic. I wanted to write a history book that didn't that felt like a like a narrative journey. You know, I wanted the reader to feel like they were um on these tours and in these places alongside me. And to do that, I had to take the best of what I've learned from poetry and, and honestly the best of what I've learned from, from fiction and, and some of my favorite novelists who, who create these three dimensional characters who give you a sense mm. of like who they are physically, who they are emotionally. And I wanted to do the same thing with the characters who, who appear in my novel to, to the best that not my novel, my, my, uh, my own book to the, to the best extent that I could,
0: yeah. One of the things that you brought up that I had to stop reading the book a few times to vent to my husband about was sort of the ways that um the history of slavery has been like minimized or defanged a little bit or sort of neutered or I don't know whatever analogy you want to use. And reading your book made me feel a lot of rage. Like I was really upset reading your book and I like to think of myself as someone who knows More of the history probably than like the average person like, you know, I'm I'm interested in the history of slavery and of America, but I'm not like a full fledged, you know, scholar. But I was getting upset about how the ways that we've been taught about it, like how we disassociated from so much of the violence and even Mm. the ways that we talk about the violence is like, oh, slaves were whipped. But, like, mm-hmm. we don't really talk about, like, what that means, mm-hmm. right? Like, what 30 actual lashes on your actual bare skin would actually feel like and look mm-hmm. like to someone who's being forced to watch it as mm-hmm. a warning. Like, those types of things. And, and I'm just wondering for you, as you dove really deep into this stuff, what came up for you? What sort of feelings or emotions or, or maybe that were surprising or that you expected?
1: i mean one of the things that i loved and appreciated about this book was you know the nature of uh, of a narrative non-fiction book that is based on in which the conceit is like going to different places mm-hmm. is that i actually don't know i wouldn't know what i was going to encounter until i got there right um and so you know i i had spent years um uh, reading books on the history of slavery and felt like I had a pretty good understanding of, of that history. And then you, it's a completely different experience to, to, I think, read. It's ironic because I've written a book, but like to read about a place (laughs) and then, and then it's uh, to go to that place, right? Like it's one thing to read about what happened, you know, the separation of families or, or how many children, um, died in infancy during slavery. And then it's another thing to go to the Whitney plantation and to like stand in a place that has walls surrounding you with the names of, and dates of children who, who passed away in Louisiana. It's, it's, it's one thing to read about a dozen people living in, in a single cabin. Um, and it's another thing to like physically stand in that cabin where entire families, multiple families were, were forced to live to, to see the, uh you know the way that the sunlight crept in through the cracks in the wood to see the way uh that the the air you know on cold days would come in through those same cracks and to imagine that people had to sleep in this place you know regardless of of what the weather or the conditions were like and so again part of what i wanted to do was to uh, to create that sort of sensory experience as much as is possible through through literature and I think I was just surprised by how even when there was something that I I knew intellectually how uh how different how much more profoundly it impacted me like in my body mm-hmm. to be there you know um and to just to walk across this land to to be at to you know I've been thinking about for example mass incarceration for for years. My, my dissertation uh, in college is around the relationship between education and incarceration, but like nothing can prepare you for going to the largest maximum security prison in the country where 75% of the people held there are black men. 70% of them are serving life sentences. That's 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the Island of Manhattan. That used to be a former plantation Hmm. and to see men working for virtually no pay, working in fields of what used to be a plantation while someone stands over them or sits over them on horseback with a rifle over their shoulder or to go to that place and to to consider what it means that that place has a gift shop right you know and has a museum that doesn't say anything about the history of slavery and that in that gift shop connected to this museum they have uh there was a mug that had the silhouette of the front gate of angola And there was the silhouette of somebody standing on top of the gate um, of the watchtower uh, at the top of the gate. And you can see the the silhouette of their gun. And above and below the mug is written Angola, a gated community as if to make a mockery of what is happening in that place today, not even in the past. Right. right. Like, but today, right. you know, you go to Germany and these some of these death camps uh, and concentration camps are have been turned into museums and they have, um, you know, restaurants and gift shops. But, you know, they're done. I haven't been. But to the extent that I understand, they're done as tastefully as possible. And and also people still aren't there. Right. right. Like it's a fundamentally different thing when when you go to a museum for a prison that still houses thousands of people right, right, and then not only to have that gift shop, you know, us connected to that museum where the average sentence is 83 years, but then to not at all address the history that makes a piece of land like that possible. Mm-hmm. And then further to have those sort of, you know, these things that people purchase in a gift shop that, that are almost making fun of or making light of, like right. what is actually happening in that prison? So, so when you ask like what I'm, what was I surprised by? I think I was in some ways like surprised by my capacity to be surprised and shocked. Sure, you know, like yeah. I, I kind of, it, it, as much as I've always understood mass incarceration and and prisons as being horrific, violent places, it was something very different to be in a place like that and mm-hmm. to experience the profound failure of reckoning um, that is reflected in, in sort of every part of that that prison.
0: Yeah, that was, I think, the most frustrating chapter in the book or section of yeah. the book. At least for me, I was like, I'm going to punch someone. <laughs> um, but you're right. I, I was uh, fortunate to visit the Whitney Plantation, and I had a similar experience of like, I know what this is going to be. Like, Mm -hmm. I know how to prepare myself. And like, I, I, you know, I might be the only black person here. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I know that this is going to be a certain thing. And then I got there and I was like, almost not embarrassed, but almost like disappointed in myself that I felt so many things Mm -hmm. because I had like prepared myself to go in and like observe this place. Mm -hmm. And I was really, you know, moved by it. And I think you really touch on, sort of some of the reasons why and and the way that the Whitney approaches everything. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the book, but um there it rained a little bit when I was there. Mm. And as we were walking um past the like little slave cabins that they have out there, there the guide was like, just be careful because um sometimes when it rains, there's snakes. And I had this moment of like Oh my God, these people are living in these tiny houses and there's all these scary snakes. <laughs> and like, I'd never thought about snakes mm-hmm. in slavery. You know, like there's like these little things when you're physically there that mm. all of a sudden you have to reckon with in a way that you can only imagine and probably fail to imagine so many of the details. And you also talk about that a little bit in the book. You have this one sentence um was like a sort of mind-blowing moment for me. In my notes, I put a little mind-blown emoji next to it so I could remember (laughs) what it felt like because that's the kind of poetry that I work with. Uh (laughs) Love the original mind-blown emoji. (laughs) Was that I never considered the fact that the history that we hear about from people who were formerly enslaved was so much people who were quote-unquote extraordinary, people who had Mm. escaped, people who had um, somehow been able to buy their freedom, who had these extraordinary stories that were unlike what everyday ordinary enslaved people experienced. And I I don't know. I just wanted to say that out loud because it just was something that was really, I, I think the question is, I think I do have a question. The question is, what do you think as someone who, you know, studies history, teaches, what do you think would be fundamentally different about America American history, American education, if we taught if we were taught history through a black slash enslaved person lens, or even just through a more inclusive lens that was more honest about what happened, like what do you what what could be different? what would be different
1: yeah I, I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, so to the first part of what you were saying. I think that that's the sort of realization that I had as I was writing the book as well. Um, Because like many folks, I would read, you know, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. and um, Many of us have read the story of Harriet Jacobs. And um, you hear about the the legend of Harriet Tubman. And we're sort of inundated, um, not frequently enough, but to the extent that we have discussions of slavery in school, they are focused primarily on like a handful of formerly enslaved people the major the vast majority of whom i'll say are people who escaped to freedom um are people who tended to live in some of the, the northernmost southern states um and who because of the nature of their circumstances whose lives don't necessarily reflect the millions of people who were enslaved right so like when we read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass or any other book about Douglass. I mean, and like, you know, David Blight wrote what is probably my favorite biography Mm. of all time, uh, his uh, Prophet of Freedom about Frederick Douglass, like extraordinary, extraordinary book. Um, I've read every Frederick Douglass autobiography and memoir. Um, So I, you know, I think that Douglass is, you know, as, as many scholars are now saying, like perhaps like our original founding father. Right. Like to the extent if we're going to like use, use that right. framing, right, right, right. Um, even if, you know, obviously it has its own sort of gendered issues embedded within it. But like if, if one was going to use that framing, I think it would be more honest to talk about Douglas as a founding father um, than, than perhaps any of the current founding fathers that we have. And so he's deeply important. But Douglas is not Douglas like wasn't a regular person.
0: You know what right. I mean? Like, like, <laughs> right, right,
1: Like not even like a regular enslaved person or formerly enslaved person. Like there there aren't many human beings in human history like that man. Right. You know, like right. it's – and so the idea – like most enslaved people weren't going to – didn't learn to read and write one. Right. Most enslaved people didn't live in Maryland, right? So like had a proximity to the north that would allow – them to escape in the ways that douglas did uh, most were not teenagers fighting their their slave breakers and like physically domineering them and and then um, to the point where like that person would never beat them again you know most of them weren't did not go on to be you know one of the best writers and speakers that this country has ever known so you know and so his life tells us can tell us certain things about slavery that are really important But they also don't reflect the experiences, again, of like the vast majority of enslaved people, people who for whom resistance didn't necessarily look like escape to the north, didn't necessarily look like fighting a slave breaker, but but whose lives reflected the sort of like daily ways and attempts to like create and maintain a sense of personhood in the face of just unfathomable circumstances you know um and like that that is enough Mm -hmm. and like that is we as much as we should celebrate um and study the life of of a douglas and a harriet tubman and the like we shouldn't forget that those are not the only enslaved people whose lives are worth um considering right or whose lives are worth studying and that's why i think the federal writers project um, that I've written about a little bit in the book, and that I've also written about for the Atlantic, uh, which is a sort of New Deal era program uh, from 1937 to 1939, uh, where the over 2,300 uh, interviews were done with formerly enslaved people um, that who were still alive in the late 1930s, right? Which is another, you know, right? Another that thing makes me Howard so mad. <laughs> I mean, it, and and so the, you know, and then these are people who are alive in the late 1930s. And so they were children, right? But they had to be old
0: enough to remember, right? It's it's such a small,
1: it's so sliver, and so you know, so those stories have their own issues and their own limitations, which scholars have talked about. You know, they were done by uh, the interviews were conducted by. Uh, white writers and interviewers who often carried their own biases and and often projected um, sort of narrow conceptions and stereotypes of blackness and authentic black speech um, onto uh, these individuals and and reflected that in the transcript when that might not necessarily have been the reality. Uh, But they still are really valuable because they give us a sense of like how enslaved people experience the institution of slavery outside the context of the autobiography of Frederick Douglass or, um, Carrie Jacobs or Alada Equiano. And to your other point, it reminds, you know, the Federal Writers Project documents remind us again, like how recent this was. Mm-hmm. I think all the time about how the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture um, in 2015, who stood alongside the Obama family to ring the bell that sort of signaled the opening of this museum that was generations in, in the works, that she was the daughter of an enslaved person. Right. Like not the granddaughter, not the great, great granddaughter, that that woman who was still alive in 2015, her father had been born into slavery. Mm -hmm. I think all the time about my own son, um, you know, who's almost four. And I think about him uh, and my grandfather. And I think about my child sitting on my grandfather's lap. And I imagine my own grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I'm I'm reminded that my grandfather's grandfather is somebody who was born into bondage. And so this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago, wasn't that long ago at all. There are people who are still alive today who loved, who were raised by, who knew, who had relationships with and connections to people who were born into slavery. And so the idea that this thing this institution that existed in this country for 250 years and that we've only been out of for 150 some odd years. So this institution that existed for a hundred years longer in this country than it hasn't, the idea that that would not have any impact on what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like is, is so profoundly morally and intellectually disingenuous Yeah. that, that, and it has to be taken seriously. And this is why things like you know the 1619 project and this is why things like you know these these moments that have that demand that we take seriously the the way that the history of slavery has shaped every facet of our social economic and political infrastructure that exists today whether it be contemporary wealth disparities whether it be the electoral college whether it be gerrymandering whether it be I mean you name it it is. It has been informed by by the history of slavery. So, you know, that became one of my obsessions in, in writing this book was just reminding the reader, but mostly reminding myself that, that this wasn't that long ago. And in the scope of human history, like this was two seconds ago. I just right, I just right. did last thing I'll say on this is that I just did an event with uh, John Green, oh. who has like a wonderful new books that's that's come out. And he has this uh, essay. It's like a bunch of brief essays, and the conceit is that like he reviews these things and like random things in the world, like Canada geese and Mario Kart
0: and okay. salad
1: dressing, you know, like provide <laughs> and does like a rating on a five star scale, and it's 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 pretty cool. Um, and one he did was on Haley's Comet, hmm. and and he said something that we should consider is that we are because I think Haley's Comet comes around every. 87 years I don't know the exact number but something like that and he was like something that's worth considering for for us like as as humans is that we are only two Halley's comets away from the removed from the emancipation of slavery Hmm. and I thought that that was such a fascinating and helpful framing Mm -hmm. because like the earth has existed for
0: Many Haley's comments. Many, many Haley's (laughs) comments, right? There have
1: been a whole lot. A lot. And we are only two removed from the institution of intergenerational chattel bondage in this country. And so, yeah, I think it's essential that we remember how recent this was. Um, It really was just yesterday.
0: Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why, for the last You just said, like, 50 things that I want to follow up on. I'm not going to be able to, but I'm going to try. One thing is that um, in Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, Mm -hmm. she talks about how it's not until, like, 20-something. I can't remember the year. It's, like, 20 2145 or something that we will be as far removed from slavery as... uh, that's not the right Mm. year but it's like she does the math on either side and i was like wait a second i'm not even gonna be alive then i know um and that was crazy for me um the other thing that I want to touch on is you're talking about the ways that slavery has informed parts of our history. And I'm right now I'm reading Carol Anderson's new book, the second, mm. and it's all about the second amendment, but it's framed mm. through anti-blackness and it's mm. just, I mean, she's freaking brilliant. Like she's I'm not wonderful. saying anything yeah. new to anyone in the, who's ever read a sentence of hers, but this book is really special because she's taking these moments from history from, you know, the, as you mentioned, the aforementioned founding fathers, she's mm-hmm. taking, you know, the constitution and all that. But now she's also talking about um the like attacks on black communities in the 19 early 1900s and like mm-hmm. all this stuff, but it's all informed through slavery and the mm-hmm. ways that they approached writing the second amendment because of black people. And like, to see it laid out this way, and now I'm I'm now like at Trayvon Martin. That's where mm. I am in the book. I'm almost done. Um, and to to draw that connection to you know Alexander Hamilton, you know everyone's favorite rapping You're founding right. father. Don't get me started on that musical. <sighs> take a deep breath. Um, but it's just, it's just so fascinating. And then the last thing that I do want to touch on, and I'm hoping you just have advice for me personally. Bef- it's not the last thing. The last thing I want to touch on about the things you said before is that I, my father was very old. He was born in 1935. He's since passed away. And I've always wanted to trace my family lineage, but I get stuck at his parents. So I'm wondering mm. if you have any advice for Black people like me who want to trace our families like I don't I mean you're a historian so I'm just asking you in the hopes that you have answers I know it's not really your job
1: (laughs) no I mean it's 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 a really interesting thing for for black folks in this country because like the first census to include black people in it wasn't until 1870 right and so that is the extent to which most many many black Americans um that is as far back as they can go. And, and beyond that, you know, you're sort of piecing together documents from a range of different, um, sources that might give you insight into, uh, you know, you know, whether it be newspapers or whether it be obituaries, or whether it be, um, and, and I know I haven't done so, um, yet, but I know that some folks have, um, found answers through ancestry. Um, dot I com tried that it was useless. It didn't work. No. Oh man. 23 and me
0: tried it i tried work. all the easy things i was hoping yeah. there are like harder secrets that historians might know
1: <laughs> i mean this is i'm i'm not a genealogical expert um but i know that uh there are people who you know you can work with um to figure out i mean what we need to do is get you on uh finding our roots we need yeah. to call skip gates and, please and figure out how are to. are you friends get with him you, you went to harvard I, <laughs> I, I do not, I've met Skip, but I, I wouldn't say we're, we're friends. He's, uh, but you know, his scholarship has been so important for, for African-American studies and for black folks in so many ways. But, um, yeah, I, it's, it's hard. I mean, it, it, you know, you look around and you see, um, you know, see my friends who are like able to trace their families to 13th mm-hmm. century Scotland and, you yeah. know, 15th century italy and you know we're sitting here being like you know to the extent that you know when i say my grandfather's grandfather was enslaved that's based on documents that like my my aunt has like put together and sort of and it's an inference that we have i mean based on like when he was born where he was born and the sort of you know this one document that we have of this Man you know a white man who's in the same county who shared the last name, so we think the last name was pat, and then we think we can make out this name on this you know yellow right. parchment that's like all broken down, so you're like zooming in as much as you can on right, the screen right. um and yeah, I mean that is that's the story of of black life in this country is yeah. um you're looking for history and looking for your history and just finding dust
0: right. And it's like probably there, we just don't even know how to look for it. Cause like I have a friend, a white friend, whose family owned humans Mm. in Virginia and Mm. they have their records, Mm. you know? And it's like, well, if I knew where to look, I might be able to find something, but like I can't. And then they have all this shit. They're just sitting on like people's histories and lives and like, ugh, just so frustrating. And speaking of people who own people, this is a very good segue. I want to talk about Blandford Cemetery briefly, um, Mm -hmm. which is a – it's a Confederate cemetery in Virginia. It has the most Confederate remains or – right in in the country. It's up there. Up there. It's one One of the the biggest. One of the big boys. I I just – this is like a very crude way of asking this. But what the fuck is wrong with us that we have these cemeteries? Because I just can't imagine – French people having cemeteries to the Nazis, you know, Mm. like these were our enemies. So that's part one of my question. And then part two is why are people who still celebrate the Confederacy? And I couldn't get this answer from your book. I I tried to glean it from the guys you were talking to, but I just couldn't quite Mm. figure it out. Why are people who still relate to the heritage of their families and whatever and being Confederate? Why are they so obsessed with also wanting to be American? Because that mm. was also their enemy. And I just cannot make the jump in logic between we celebrate this thing, whether or not it was about slavery to them, whatever. I am not gonna argue with people who don't want to have a like good converse a serious conversation, but my confusion is around if you're on team A and you're obsessed with team A, then how come you even care if team B likes you or not? Like that's none of your business, right? Like, I just mm. can't make that make sense in my mind. And I'm hoping that you can.
1: Yeah. So, so for, for context for folks, um, uh, the Blanford Cemetery is one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country. Uh, the remains of over 30,000 Confederate soldiers are buried there. And I went there uh, for the Suns Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. And so uh, as you can imagine, I was, I was very conspicuous. (laughs) I was, I was Uh, imagining,
0: I was like, what the fuck was that like?
1: (laughs) It was, um, so I, I, it's interesting. I actually went when thinking about genealogy and and lineage. I went with, um, the only way my wife would let me go is if we went with our, if I went with my white friend, um, (laughs) whose name was William. And so William went with me, um, to, to this place uh, for this event. And, and he was on his sort of own journey of of having done some sort of genealogical work and realized that his ancestors were parts of a part of the confederacy and that they owned enslaved people. so I think that we were both coming to this place and this moment um attempting to sort of make sense of what it meant in a in a contemporary way but for for sort of different reasons and so you know when I was there, what became clear to me Uh, as I had these conversations with these neo-Confederates and these sons of Confederate veterans was that history for many people in this country, history is not based on empirical evidence. It is not based on uh, historical record. It is not based on primary source documents. It's simply a story that Mm -hmm. they tell. And it's a story that they've been told. And it is this heirloom, um, that has been passed down through their families and through their, their communities that give them a sense of lineage, a sense of purpose, a sense of value that allow them to situate themselves in the historical arc of this country in ways that feel suitable and in ways that feel, um, that, that give them a sense of pride and, and affirm their, uh the value that they have gotten from the stories that they've been told by their grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents and you know part of the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it takes a, a, an empirical statement like the confederacy was a treasonous army whose existence was predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery and it takes a statement like that and it turns it into an ideological one Right. The one that is seemingly representative of uh, my politics or my ideological disposition when it, in fact, is one that's just based on the historical record and one that's just based in truth and one that, you know, you look at the primary source documents, you look at the declarations of Confederate secession and you see that these folks said it for themselves. Like they weren't (laughs) unclear about why they were seceding from the Union. A state like Mississippi said in 1861 in their declaration of secession that our state is thoroughly aligned with the institution of slavery, the greatest material good in the world, right? Like the, that's the sort of essence of, of what that statement said, or, or Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy who talked about um, in his famous 1861 cornerstone speech, how uh, the inferiority of the African and the perpetuation of chattel slavery was the cornerstone upon which this new nation would be built. Uh, And so, and then the interesting thing about Stevens is that after the war, he, so he said that in 1861, and then after the war, and this gets to the second part of your question, the the war is over, it's 1865, and he writes, is writing his memoirs, and people are asking him about uh, the speech, and he's like, I never said that. Hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? We were we were all there. It's like recorded in the newspapers. We heard you say that slavery is the cornerstone upon which the new nation would be built. And he's like, no, no, no. I never I never said anything like that. Like, what are you talking about? And it, that's the sort of beginning of this sort of lost cause mythology in which, um, which is this sort of late 19th century gaslighting where basically, you know, and and we see it happening today. We see it with regard to the election. We see it with regard to January 6th, where people are telling you that something you saw isn't actually what you saw. Right. Um, and that something they said isn't actually what they said. Um, and it's and it has profound implications for the type of society that's built. And so, you know, when, when they're saying, you know, emphasizing their Americanness at Blanford, I think part of it is because there was a recognition that they wanted to, I think it was clear to them that slavery would be because of the way the war went, that slavery was going to be remembered historically as this cycle horrific, brutal, indefensible practice. And so part of what the Lost Cause attempts to do is to say, one, the, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Like, what are you guys talking about? What do you mean? Again, even though all of their declarations of Confederate secession said that they were seceding from the Union right. because of right. slavery. And then, two, that even if the war was about slavery, slavery wasn't even that bad in the first place. Like Senator John Calhoun of South Carolina had once said, slavery is a positive good. For both uh, black people and white people alike, um, and that it was a sort of civilizing institution, as historian uh, Ulrich B. Phillips would write in the early 19th century, um, that that sort of gave black people um, the it's it civilized them in ways that that could have never happened in in Africa, and so there was there they moved toward they they told these lies about the the cause of the war and the origins of it. And also attempted to move immediately towards reconciliation without any sort of reckoning or or honest accounting for what happened. But in part because they knew that the only way they would be let back into government um, is by sort of emphasizing the the Americanness and and sort of playing down the dispute. Like where during the war, they, you know, so many of them wanted to. Uh, wanted to be understood and recognized as a different country. I mean, mm. the, when, the you know we don't have time to get like into the weeds of the Civil War, but Britain and France were on the verge of recognizing the Confederacy right. as a country and and on the verge of siding with them in part because of the their relationship to the cotton industry and the need for the and the textile infrastructure in in those European countries and and how much they relied on um, cotton coming from the South. But like if they you know if Britain and France side with the confederacy that changes the dynamics of the war in a fundamental way. Um, And so they wanted to be recognized as their own country. And then after the war, they didn't want to be understood as having attempted to form their own country. And they wanted to say, this was American versus American. We were just fighting to, you know, for, for our respective States and to our families. And they started calling it the, the war of Northern aggression. Um, And as Jeff in the book says, you know, one thing he says is that if, if they didn't come down and bother us, nothing would have happened.
0: Right. Of course. Jeff. And I'm, and I'm kind of like,
1: yeah, right. And I'm like, well, well, nothing would have happened for who? Right. I mean, like he was like, nothing would have happened and everything would have been fine. And I was like, it it most certainly wouldn't have been fine for the 4 million enslaved black people. Right, right. In the South. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, I think all of it is an attempt to, to run away from, and remove themselves as much as possible from the idea that they ever wanted to be a separate nation from this country um, and to rewrite history, to say that it was um, this thing that was like brother against brother, American against American. And it's not to say that in some instances the civil war didn't split families up, but it is to say that, (laughs) you know, these were people who, who were trying to build a nation that would have extended and perpetuated slavery for, for decades and decades longer, um, right. li- likely into the, into the 20th century. Um, and, and that is not what they wanted to be remembered as having done.
0: Yeah. And you're a sports person, right? I am. It's like that quote, the, um, I think it's the coach of the Bears or it's about the Bears where he's like, they are who we thought they were and we let them off the hook. And that's what happened. Like the Confederate people, they were exactly who they said they were and we let them off the hook. And by we, I don't mean us. I mean the white people who could have... Like enforced some, you know, punishments, reparation type vibes. Just it's just so frustrating because it's like now we have to have these stupid conversations that are in bad faith because people didn't just correct the record in the moment. Like you could have just been like, hey, guy. And we still have the same problem now. Like Trump constantly, constantly mm-hmm. telling people things that he said on the record were things that he never said. And people are like, yeah, he didn't say that. I'm Like, well, why yeah. am I watching a video of him saying that? Exactly. It's just like the same bullshit
1: and it has huge implications for the world we live in today right like it's not just this sort of like annoying gaslighting mythology i mean there was a southern poverty law center study in 2018 that showed that only eight percent of u.s high school seniors were able to identify slavery as the central cause of the civil war like eight percent and so if you have an entire generation of young people who don't understand the centrality of slavery to the civil war and who fail to understand, thus, the centrality of slavery to the history of this country, then you have, a, and, and, and this goes back to our conversation about people understanding, one, how the sort of uh, economics of slavery made the United States into a global economic superpower. As David Blight, the historian at Yale University, writes, in 1860, the four million enslaved black people were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined. Right. Like worth more than all of the manufacturing capacity of the country in 1860 were the bodies of enslaved people. And so the U.S., you know, enslaved people were very clearly uh, the thing that helped create the United States or or make the United States into a global economic superpower. And so there's that. And so you fail to understand how the economics of slavery con- created the contemporary, not only American economic landscape, but global economic landscape. Right. And then you don't you fail to understand how recent it was, and I think the and then you fail to understand how the you know, a war that in which seven hundred thousand people died um, was was most centrally about that question. The confluence of all these things together means that you will have an entire generation of young people who look around this country and who believe who fall into the trap of believing that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way the reason one part of dc looks one way or another part of dc looks another way the reason one part of new orleans looks one way and another part of new orleans looks another way the reason one part of la looks one way another part of la looks another way is because of the people in those communities mm-hmm. rather than what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation and you know james baldwin has this great essay um called a talk to teachers it's not one of his more famous ones, but it's one that that's impacted me a lot. And he wrote it in uh, 1963. I think it was published in 1964. It was based on a speech that he gave to a group of New York city educators. And part of what he talks about is um, the failure to teach about the history of slavery in this country. And what he says is that the role of the teacher um, and he's using teacher, I think both literally, cause he's speaking to a group of educators, but also in a sort of metaphorical sense to talk about like society at large. The role of the teacher is to help like, black children understand that although the world will tell them over and over and over again that they are criminal, that it is in fact the society and the history that has created the conditions that that black child is growing up in yeah. that is actually the criminal, right? And it's like very simple and very intuitive, but right. it's so important and something that so many of our young people miss today, right? I think about my, my own time as a high school English teacher and how deeply- So many of my students had internalized these messages about who they were and what their community was like because no one had given them the toolkit or the framework or the language to understand that the reason, you know, Prince George's County, Maryland looks the way that it does or Washington, D.C. looks the way that it does. And the specific neighborhoods that are experiencing that are saturated with violence and poverty. That that violence and poverty is not a reflection of a a cultural disposition. It's not reflective of uh, something genetic or biologically inherent. It is reflective of decades and decades and decades of state-sanctioned decisions and policies that have made that community into what it is. Um, And it's, I think when we can, part of what I hope this book can do and part of what I write at the end is I wanted to write a book that that I would have wanted to teach my students, right? Mm. And, and one that would have helped give them some sort of language and framework to understand this specific period of our history um, so, so that they can reclaim a sense of agency, right? Like it, it, some people will say like, oh, if you tell black kids all the time about like oppression and slavery and history and Jim Crow, they'll be overwhelmed. I mean, I think if you teach poorly, that is right. what will happen. Sure. But like, if you do it the right way, and you like have a thoughtful, effective pedagogy. I think it 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 will do for those young people. What it did for me is like be this deeply liberating thing mm-hmm. and like, this deeply emancipatory thing, because you are able to more effectively identify the lies that this country tells you about yourself. Right. And you are more able to effectively situate you and your community in the sort of larger history of this country and understand that you know we all while we all have agency we all have free will we are all you know in some ways responsible for the decisions decisions that we make though all of that has to be understood in the sort of larger social and historical context from which it emerges um and and that's just so important because i remember being a kid in new orleans and being told it was the murder capital of the nation and we right. had the highest prison rate you know, higher prison rates than Russia and China and Iran and, you know, and, and telling all these stories, um, that made me feel as a kid, when I didn't have the language to push back against it, I was like, well, is, is there something wrong with us? Like, is there, and it's so, and that's so, it's so insidious and it's so cruel. Um, and that's why it's so important that we push back against all this stuff that's happening now around critical race theory and these state legislatures that Mm -hmm. are trying to, Um, make it so that we don't have teach honest accounts of our history.
0: Okay. I'm going to ask you just a few more questions that are less related to the book and more related to your process. Um, First of all, because everyone listening can tell that you're obviously a very smart human being. It is important to all of us to know what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try. And before I let you answer, I also read your book of poetry and I happen to see that you love spelling. (laughs) And so I almost didn't ask you this question, but there's got to be at least like one or two words that you always mess up.
1: Oh, man. Well, the the book gives a, a distorted sense of my love for spelling because <laughs> I loved spelling bees as a child. I was like very competitive as a child. But and you were so, good
0: at it. You like, I, well, I was good spelling. at it because
1: I would not accept there was I was, I was <laughs> so that we in PE, we would like run to the fence and back every Wednesday or whatever. We okay. had, and there was this one kid who always beat me. And I was like, well, if I can't be, if I'm always getting second place in running, like I've got to be the best <laughs> in the spelling bee. And so I like practiced. It, it was it was too much. But like, if I, so I was like, I can't be the fastest, so I'm gonna spell the best. And so I kept. But I also very rarely won the spelling bee. I always got like second or third. Oh, so I was like bummer. toward the top. But um, the story of my elementary school was like number two, second place, Clint. Sorry. Um, now, you know, I've, he went to I'm, Harvard, I'm so fuck it. those people. <laughs> off.
0: Like, I don't know. <laughs> Oh man!
1: Um, <laughs> what is a word that I can't spell? Um, what is a word that I
0: can't spell? I hate when people do this because that means they can spell everything, and I'm sitting no, over no, here no, just I being can't. like, I spell everything wrong. <laughs>
1: uh, there's so many. I mean, like the the little squigglies have messed me. Up. I have so many things on Microsoft Word that are on autocorrect, mm. and so like I don't even know when I'm spelling something wrong. Uh, I would say. I listen to your podcast so much. I should be prepared for this question.
0: Clint Smith, world's best feller.
1: No, not at all. I mean, (laughs) the things, just generally things I I don't know. This is like a a sidestepping answer, but like when things have a hyphen. In the middle of mm, them or not? Like you know? nonfiction,
0: so, I just learned that because of the stupid podcast.
1: <laughs> does does nonfiction have? I don't a hyphen? think so.
0: I don't do it with well, fiction anymore. With the hyphen, anymore, I mean, but I used to. Like,
1: does nonfiction have a hyphen? Does pre? You know, I've been talking about pre-orders for this book for so many. Oh months yeah, no. Life. Does pre-order
0: have a hyphen? No hyphen. It
1: doesn't have a hyphen. So look, this counts. Yeah, because no, that's totally I don't counts. know what has a hyphen, yeah. and I don't know. Well, doesn't. then there's and words then,
0: like wrap up, where a wrap up versus wrapping something up, one has a hyphen and one doesn't. One is two words oh, like a one. wrap up. Yeah. Or two, 2 wrap up.
1: Oh. Yeah. Or even words. So, even words that are like, so both the hyphens and when words that could be one word, mm-hmm. like prepositions, um, also could be two words like into. Yes. Like when do I use into? Right. And then when do I use in to?
0: Or what about cannot and cannot and cannot and can't? I don't, can't. I don't know the difference. Cannot? I don't know the difference, so I always use can't.
1: There you go. <laughs> even though when there I you. speak,
0: I always say I cannot with this, or, I cannot with that. You're know, like super hyperbole.
1: But even when whenever I combine cannot, I'm like this feels too fancy. I don't know why it feels fancy. It like can't like c a n n o t feels somehow like more sophisticated than like c a n space n-o-t yes i don't know why yeah i'm um, with you it's definitely fancier. so there we go it's okay, definitely it. like hyphens and what words or should be two words versus one word
0: that's fine we'll accept that answer okay this is a question that everyone um is waiting for which is how do you write where are you are there snacks and beverages don't leave that part out do you have music rituals a candle a vibe like what is your writing life look like
1: yeah so as you know, I have two small children. Yes. Um, I have a two-year-old and then an, uh by the time this podcast is out, he'll be a four year old. Um, two year old daughter, two year old and four year old son. And they are delightful. The lights of my life. Uh, the best <laughs> thing that's ever happened. I know where this uh, is going. Like <laughs> every parent knows. Um and they uh it is I've I've I don't know it's interesting because this is this writing experience for this book uh, has taken place over the course of four years and my son's about to turn four. So mm-hmm. like I, I can't disentangle being the parent of a young child and and then young children from writing this book. So I like don't actually know what it would like to write a book when you don't have Small a baby and yeah. you're not sleep deprived and you're not. Um, so I think I was quickly disabused of any notion that I would have like a regular time period uh, in which to write, a regular space in which to write. Um, and so much of the writing of this book was done uh, literally with like my child on my chest. Mm. For for so long, my daughter would only sleep in, um. I forgot what you call the wraparound, like it's the thing that- The snoo? It's the wrap. It's not oh. the snoo, but the thing on your chest.
0: The swaddle? Um, oh, oh, the baby
1: Bjorn. The baby Bjorn, it, well, it's it's like the baby Bjorn. It's not that brand. Um, I forgot what it's, solely wrap. Yeah, it's like the you wrap yeah, it yeah. around, and they're like you know. Yeah. And so I'd have to like bounce her up and down, and that was the only way for, she fell asleep for like half her life up to this point. Oh my and god! And so so much of my writing, I've um pictures is like me. I'm like bouncing. I create a standing desk out of like random books. And then I'm sort of like gently bouncing up and down as this child is sleeping on my chest. (laughs) And if I stop bouncing, she'll wake up. So I'm kind of like bouncing as I type. And um, I had a conversation with uh, the amazing writer and scholar Imani Perry uh, Mm. a few years ago who has her own, you know, who's just so prolific and and also has two two children who, you know, were very young um, early in her career. And she was just like, Clint, you got to we were at lunch one time and she said, Clint, you got to let go of this idea that like you're going to have your incense and Mm. your candles and your like favorite tea and that you'll be able to do yoga before and the sun will be hitting you just right. (laughs) She's like, you just got like if you can get 15 or 20 minutes in. Right. Like then then that is enough. And like that adds up. And so I really took that to heart. And, you know, I would bring my laptop with me everywhere like if my kids fell asleep in the back of the car we'd pull over at CVS and like I would you know write as long as I could until they woke up I wrote during episodes of Sesame Street I wrote mm-hmm. during nap time I wrote um, and then the pandemic happened and and they were here and there was like no child care right. um, and so you know my wife has been incredible throughout this you know this book would not be possible without her so um, you know, she would work really hard to make sure that I had time to, to write and to finish the edits. And, um, so all of that's a long way of saying, uh, I don't have any sort of rituals around writing.
0: Um, but do because... you have snacks or beverages that you like? Do I have when snacks you're... or beverages.
1: <laughs> I love clementines. Oh my like, God, I am not a, a healthy snack. A fish... No, it's a, <laughs> a clementine, but it tastes like candy. It tastes like candy. It's delicious. The candy of the earth. You live near
0: call, Jason Reynolds, right? You guys are near each he other. He lives in D.C. Yeah. yeah. This must be a D.C. thing where you only like healthy snacks over there.
1: Oh, man. What a nightmare. Don't, don't do that to the Clementines. <laughs> they they might be healthy, but they are like lollipops. They're just like lollipops. They're like Jolly Ranchers. I feel like, do trees. you work
0: for the Clementine Lobby over here? <laughs> <laughs> They're Basically. like candy. I'm, ready, I'm
1: trying to get my Clementine sponsorship.
0: <laughs> I love it. Okay. We're not gonna have time to talk about soccer, but just so everyone knows, Clint and I both like soccer and basketball. And Clint yes. went to college with my superstar basketball player, Steph Curry, at Davidson. I right? Did. Do you know I him? Did, yeah. Are you friends with him? Yeah,
1: yeah. That's he, that's he's uh he's definitely a friend. Um, before the pandemic, whenever I was in the Bay Area, um, we would try to get together. I would try to.
0: So you've met a Riley game. Curry. His I've
1: never met Riley actually.
0: Oh, um, I've never she's met my favorite Curry. Because we curry. only see each
1: other. <laughs> she's, I mean, it's amazing to think about. I saw a picture of her the other she's day. Like 45 like, she's like forty five now. I was like, I remember when you were just a little baby taking the microphone the during yawning. press conferences. Oh, oh my, my gosh. god, she's Ooh, an meme, icon, a meme legend. She's an icon um,
0: of my heart. Any she, I mean, obviously she's the most interesting Curry. Everyone's favorite Curry. The most fun, oh, the most personality. It's her, and then the mom, and then Steph. <laughs>
1: And then everybody, it's the poor, the poor, other kids.
0: Yeah. And then I'm like, Callie um, Curry are married in now, the dynasty of the I Rivers mean, Curry. Family. There's
1: so it's many. It's a whole crew.
0: And they like it's play on whole each crew, other's but- teams.
1: I know it's wild because it doesn't the the brother-in-law plays on on Damian
0: Lee is that the brother in law I think so he's married to slide what's I always we have a nickname Sadell we have a nickname for her in our family that's not her name that's like an inside joke but that's what I call her it's not even mean it's just we've added letters but anyways she is married to Steph's teammate and then Austin Rivers uh, sister Callie Rivers is now married to the brother Curry
1: Oh man, I didn't even realize
0: that. So Doc and Austin are married in to the curry empire. The new empire of pain. The empire of splash. (laughs) The new empire of pain. (laughs) The empire of
1: splash. Chef, uh, so many chef curries. So many, too
0: many chefs in the kitchen. And then Aisha actually cooking things curry. But the point is that Clint will be back so we can do a full sports podcast because we have to talk deep Premier League even though I'm like a newbie to Premier League in the last few um, years. But I I'm just a,
1: you're, a hard time to be you're an Arsenal fan.
0: Old school throwback. Have you always been an Arsenal fan?
1: Yeah, I was for the folks who are familiar with the Premier League, um, I was tricked into <laughs> uh cheering for Arsenal because I loved Thierry Henry. Okay. I was like obsessed. Um, Thierry Henry, for those who don't know, is this um French Mar- Martin, uh, French Martinique, or Martinique French. His parents are from Martin- the island of Martinique. He's he was born and raised in Paris, okay. um, I believe, uh, and and he's just it was is this like Arsenal legend, French legend, won the World Cup with France when he was just nineteen, I think. Um, and I had posters of Thierry Henry <laughs> on like every wall in my in my room growing up, and so the Arsenal who he played for was incredible in like the early 2000s. Mm. I mean they we went we were the first team in Premier League history to go an entire 38 game season undefeated. Wow. Um and that was the 2003 season. Um wow. I think it was 2003-2004. And and I was after that I was just like this is my this is my team. This is my crew. And then it was downhill. And in the last few years since the Old manager retired um a few years ago arson vanger who we really took for granted i mean we're gonna have to have a whole other conversation because I, tu- <laughs> I took that man for granted i was like it's, let's get it we need some new blood let's get him out of here and then now i'm like oh man that was those were the good old days uh but it has been rough we are not i think we're 10th in the league right now and i remember complaining about being third i was like third place like, we need to <laughs> and now I, I would just oh the things i would do for third place um yeah so it's uh I've stayed an Arsenal fan and sports are fascinating. Cause like I'm so deeply emotionally invested in Same. this team in I... ways that I, that don't actually make logical sense, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but reflect, I think the w- ways that that team and that person shaped my childhood. Sure. Um, and also the sort of communities, both online and in person that are formed like through this sport in ways that are just remarkable. I studied abroad in Senegal and uh, I remember I had a Arsenal jersey on, and I was living in this small village in uh, Western Eastern Senegal. Uh, and when I got there, um, this little kid came up to me and he told me in French, and he was like, uh, "Arsenal is my favorite team. Oh. I love your jersey." And then he invited me to come play with him and his friends. Oh. And then then I, they invited me to come eat with their family. And then I'm like, you know, and it just it truly. I mean, some cliches are cliche for a reason because they're just true. But like soccer is just the, the way that it opens doors and creates community anywhere you go in the world. I've always just been so amazed by it. And that's been true everywhere I've gone in the world. You can find people playing, um, playing a game of football. And, and that is such a beautiful, incredible thing, you know, or I'm in DC at a random bar watching an Arsenal game with a bunch of strangers. And we're, I would like to say that we were celebrating together, but we were probably crying and (laughs) congratulating on one another's shoulders. Well,
0: that's the thing about um, sports is like, and I've noticed that with soccer because Long story short, my brother is very into soccer and he's a big Man City fan. And so originally he wanted us all to get into soccer, his wife, my husband, myself. And so we each picked different teams. We each picked an A team and then a B team. So my A team originally was Arsenal because I just picked them because mm-hmm. I liked Obama Yang. I thought that was a great name. Obama Yang mm-hmm. gang. Hello. That's my Obama bye-bye. Yang gang. And then my backup team was uh, Bournemouth because I thought Mm. that was funny. Oh, that's a choice. Yeah, we all had weird backups. Like Sarah's was Crystal Palace. I think my husband's was Watford. I don't know. We all had weird backups. But Brady, my brother, was so into Man City and he made us watch that Amazon documentary about them. And this was at the beginning of the pandemic. He made me watch it and I loved it so much. I fell in love with Pep Guardiola. How could you not? And then it was like, I don't want to root for any other team because now I love these people. And these are my friends and they're my brothers in arms. And Phil Foden is one of our own. And like I'm just here for all of these people. And so everyone in our family, at least the four of us plus my kids, all got team player names so i'm mama sterling after raheem sterling oh. my oldest twin ezra he's ezra de Bruiner because when he was a baby he kind of looked like kevin de bruyner so we do the kevin de bruyner chant for him and he knows it's his chant and wow. he screams and puts his hands oh up gosh. and my brother is pep bradyola it's so like we all have our own things and so now that it's become like this phenomenal. huge family like so we all dress up in our costumes whenever we watch <laughs> Together. Oh my
1: gosh. I need it. I'm about to text my
0: family group chat and be like, we need to step you it up. You guys need to step what it up because, because and so Quintin, my younger twin, he looked a lot like Vincent Company, but mm. Vincent Company never played during Quinton's lifetime. And mm. so originally his jersey says Company, but we've decided because I always. <laughs> Get uh, Kevin De Bruyne and Zinchenko confused. We've decided (laughs) that Quinton is now Quinchenko because that's obvious, and they're the twins. Uh, But I'm also very anti it because, like, they're the two white guys on the team, and I'm like saying my black kids are them. But it just works so great. So, anyways, that's how we have gotten into soccer, and it's very weird and inside, but it makes it funny. And every day, I text my brother the lineup that I think that Pep should pick. It's never right, but it's based on my vibes. (laughs)
1: I mean, Pep is – I mean, talk about a genius.
0: Oh, my God. And how could you not I mean, love him? He's so funny. He's just he's such so a weird, quirky guy. I had guy. to stop
1: watching the documentary because I was like, my allegiance is about to change. Oh, my God. I don't think the guy ever got past episode three. Oh, well, it only gets and I better. Like,
0: I know. Only it only gets better. It not
1: gotten too good. And so I was like, I need to, I need to hold off because I'm already, am already on thin ice. With, oh my god, Ar- Arsenal's already on thin ice with me. So. you
0: need to uh, write a book about sports so that we can do this again and fully go deep dive sports and people who are here listening about history aren't like, I want to kill myself. I'm turning right. this They're off like, immediately. What kind of
1: transition is, is, is happening? I
0: exactly. do have, I have to ask you two more questions. Let's do it, and then yeah. we can be done. One is for people who love this book, your book. How the Word is Passed, what are some books you might recommend to them that are in conversation with or are good other things to kind of vibe? I know you've mentioned some things already too.
1: Yeah, I would read uh, David Blight's The Prophet of Freedom uh, about its biography of Frederick Douglass. I would read Annette Gordon-Reed's The hemmingses of Monticello um, about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemmings and, and really the entire Hemmings family. I would read Their Price for a Pound of Flesh mm. uh, by Diana Ramey Berry. Um, I would read Uh, The Myth of the Black Confederates, I think is what it's called, by Kevin Levin. Uh, I would read uh, The Slavery in New York by Leslie Harris and Ira Berlin. Um, uh, Many Thousands Gone by Ira Berlin, which is just like an amazing survey of the history of slavery. I would read Race and Reunion by David Blight. There are so many. Those are a few. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's also important for me to say, like, this book only is what it is because of the historians who whose scholarship has like transformed my understanding of slavery and so you know i hope that people will be you know who might be reading about slavery uh, in depth for the first time with my own book will be encouraged to um go to a lot of the places that i cite in my in a lot of the books that i cite in my bibliography and in my notes um because one of the things that i love is that the the work of these academic historians is so important to and in conversation with the work of the public historians Mm. who I lift up in the book, you know, like the folks at Monticello and the folks at Whitney and the folks uh, in New York and the folks in Galveston, like they, their work is only possible uh, because of the years of work that these academic historians have spent in the archives. Um, And, and I think, sometimes people like pit them against one another, like, you know, a public historian or an academic historian or, and I just, I think it's so important to think about the ways that it's, it's a symbiotic relationship, like yeah. both of both need one another and both um, make the work of the other um, possible. You know, like the people that more people are encountering Annette at Gordon Reed's work when they go to Monticello, than they might at any other place. Um, you know, the people who give the tours at the Whitney are, spending more time with the the books on the history of slavery than than a lot of graduate seminars right um, right and right. so I think it's uh we're so lucky to have so many different types of historians in the world who are doing so many different types of work to and and doing their best to like bring these stories um to life um and bring them to as many people as possible
0: yeah uh, oh, I love that okay last one if you could have anyone dead or alive read your book who would it be
1: I know we talked about, <laughs> I know we talked about like, you know, Frederick Douglass was great and all, but like, we shouldn't only focus on Douglass. I still, if I could have one person read my book, I would, I would just want to know what Frederick Douglass thinks. I'd be mm. like, do you think I'm a good writer? I'm trying <laughs> do to do you Do you want to be
0: friends? <laughs> Can you please be my friend?
1: Oh man. I mean, what a he's a legend. Yeah. He's a legend. So I think I would probably, given the subject matter and just the way that he, as a thinker, as a philosopher, as a writer has shaped the way i understand american history uh i would have to say i'd have to say Frederick
0: douglas i love that that's that's a perfect answer everybody at home this has been a conversation with clint smith soccer fan extraordinaire historian poet writer oh uh host of crash course which is a history course online that you can take it's very fun um it's on the internet it's on youtube right youtube
1: Yeah crash course black american history
0: and i will link to everything we talked about today in the show notes as you know but this is clint his book is called how the word is passed it is out on june 1st which means you can get it now wherever you get your books clint thank you so much for being here
1: thank you so much for this conversation it was so fun
0: yay and everyone else we will see you in the stacks Thank you all for listening. And thank you so much to Clint for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Katie LaSalle and Michael Tackins for making this interview possible. Our June book club pick is The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness by Anne Boyer. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, June 30th, right here with Michael Denzel Smith. Please make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirages. The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.